Welcome back to another episode of the Delaware National Guard podcast. Today we are bringing you another episode from the Delaware Air National Guard's 75th anniversary that was celebrated in September of 2021. This series focuses on airmen from the Delaware Air National Guard and revolve around the topic of heritage and proud traditions of family members that have served in the armed forces for generations. I am very proud and excited to have in the recording studio with me, retired Brigadier General Ernest G. Talbert, who really needs no introduction with the Delaware Guard family. But for our listeners, General Talbert, could you please give us a brief introduction? I am Ernest George Talbert, Brigadier General, retired U.S. Air Force. Upon my retirement, I was uh, fortunate enough to be awarded the honorary rank of Major General in the Delaware National Guard. Uh, At retirement, I was the Chief of Staff for the Delaware Air National Guard, also known at the time as the Vice Commander of the Delaware Air National Guard, serving under, uh, at that time, Hugh Brumall. I'd like to start off by going back in time to a young Ernest Talbert. What was it that made you want to join the Air Force, and what drove your interest in aviation? (laughs) Well, I I, I have had a uh, family history of uh, participation in the military, but on my father's side and my mother's mother's side. I uh, lived in Dover, uh, adjacent to Dover Air Force Base from my earliest years, first grade up through high, starting high school. Had multiple opportunities to be exposed to the base and its personnel. I, um, at an early age, I de- decided I wanted to be a pilot. Did, know, did not know any pilots at the time, but it's just a, a dream that I had. And um, I kept it until I actually became a pilot. I was studying your career, and I saw that you started in South Carolina, and then you came up to Delaware. What was it that brought you up here? Well, uh, I spent, uh, say, uh, five good years at Charleston Air Force Base. Uh, During that period of time, I um, upgraded to line instructor aircraft commander, and I ended up as a young captain, as a senior duty controller in the Charleston Air Force Base Command Post. And in that role, um, I supervised the day-to-day operations, maintenance operations and aerial port functions, coordinating um, air crews as they would come through base operations. And on one particular day, as I was at my counter, I haven't already contemplated pretty much made the decision that I was going to uh, separate after my first tour. Uh, Tom LePay, Tenny Wheatley, and Joe Lanahan came to my window to check in. And that was the first time I realized that there was, in fact, a Delaware Air National Guard. Um, I lived just in West, West Wilmington at that time when I entered the service, and I... Uh, just didn't know we just down the street there was uh, a place that might be able to fulfill my dreams you know later on and they can they were very cordial and extended an invitation to me to join the unit when I got out the reoccurring theme that I see in your highly decorated career is consistently breaking barriers 
You're the first African-American colonel in the Delaware Air National Guard, the first African-American general in the Delaware National Guard, and the first African-American to be the 166 Airlift Wing Commander. Am I missing anything there? I might want to add, uh, I was the first African-American uh, squadron commander for the 142nd Airlift Squadron, first flying squadron commander in the Delaware Guard. What do these achievements mean to you, and how do you think they've impacted the diversity and inclusion standards for the Delaware Guard as a whole? My, my path was one that uh, fulfilled my own personal aspirations. Um, ultimately, it provided to me a greater level of appreciation for, for the Guard and consequently a greater pride in my membership. I saw it as a supreme responsibility on my part. I grew up in the um, uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, my experience at that time was the, the National Guard, when they were called out, generally seemed to be on the wrong side of issues that I was most concerned about. Uh, Little Rock, uh, University of Alabama, some various issues in, in Mississippi. Later on, as a high school uh, senior, a- after the uh, death of Martin Luther King, um, I was directly affected by the guard's occupation of the city of Wilmington for nine months. It was ironically years later as General Brumall and General Talbert, were, who were friends since we were uh, captains and lieutenants, we would reflect on the fact that there I was, a frightened 18-year-old African-American uh, roaming the streets of Wilmington while Hugh was a 19, 20-year-old airman with a loaded weapon for the first time in the trunk of his car being asked to patrol the, the streets as a... <laughs> A frightened airman. Uh, I had vowed, and I think you did too, that we were going to make sure there was a difference by the time. And we did that uh, as we were young company grade officers, I believe. Uh, Kent State, as you know, had shown uh, th- what the results would be from an undisciplined uh, force. Uh, But it really wasn't until I joined the Air National Guard that I realized the Air National Guard had as much a role in the um, in the state law, not necessarily law enforcement, but state uh, riot control as the Army Guard did a significant part. One thing, the Air Guard, because of the nature of our force being full time, a large portion of it is full-time. Uh, we are readily available when things crop up to give our brethren on the Army side time to get their forces together. <laughs> I, um, so I, as, as a young captain, I ended up being a squad leader for one of our uh, civil disturbance squads. I had a background in drill and ceremonies with Pershing rifles. I was pretty good in drill and uh, my squad was to my mind the best drilling squad (laughs) of any of the units that uh, had to drill Um, but yet 
uh, as the only African-American officer, I was struck then by um, how important my, my role was. You've had over 6,500 hours of flight time, numerous combat missions, including Iraq, Kuwait, the Gulf War. If you had to choose, which one of these missions was the most impactful on you as a leader? <laughs> you know, I got a, this a very vivid moment uh, during Desert Storm, uh, the night before the ground war, if you will, you know. Uh, we arrived at Al Karj uh, Airfield in um, central Saudi Arabia and performed a, a month's worth of logistical movements throughout the kingdom, resupplying troops and whatnot. But everybody was anticipating the, the ground war to start. And you could see that it was about to start because the army troops that we were supplying in the middle and southern part of Saudi Arabia were moving up north. We were uh, flying missions, landing on uh, highways that lined the northern part of Saudi Arabia. They'd block off two-lane road and divert the traffic off into the dirt, and we'd land on the highway and and resupply our troops, primarily uh, not just uh, hard goods, but uh, fuel. Uh, we engines running, pump the fuel out of bladders on our airplanes into. Uh, awaiting tanker trucks and they would put it in the, the uh, tanks that were getting uh, one mile per gallon of gas burned. <laughs> but uh, anyway, with the uh, the moon starting to illuminate the uh, night a little bit better, there was an anticipation that we we're going to start this ground war. And sure enough, one night uh, some folks came to several of our tents, and we shared a squadron with the Texas unit, an active duty unit out of Dias, Texas. Our leadership was integrated. Uh, Colonel Dugar, who was the wing commander here at Delaware, was actually the, uh, the uh, assistant squadron commander, if you will, there, along with uh, B.V. Hammond, who was the, the overall squadron commander from Dias, Texas. But anyway, we got... We got alert, a bunch of us got alerted, six crews from Delaware and six crews from Dias, Texas. We went down to the uh, Ops Arena, sat in the uh, auditorium for the briefing, and uh, they said the stuff's on. Uh, and um, here's the mission. They threw uh, big slides on the board, big maps. They showed us an airfield inside of a... Uh, Kuwait that was currently occupied by the Iraqis, but we were going to be a, uh, attacking that base in the next uh, 24 hours. Uh, we were going to be uh, uh, the French were going to supposedly were going to attack the base on the ground. We were going to be coming in shortly there afterwards, and our tanks would be arriving just simultaneously with us getting in there, and we were going to drop. Uh, you know, refuel them, and uh, we had helicopter escorts, armed helicopter escorts that were going to take us in low level because of the, the threat that was existing. And it, it wasn't until after the war that we realized that the adversary, who we thought it was at least five foot ten, if not six foot tall, was <laughs> was not quite the the adversary we thought he was. But during that time, um, uh, 
it was pretty intense, pretty intense. And uh, at the end of the briefing, the, the briefer stood up and said, uh, okay, and because of the difficult nature of this mission, we're gonna take, uh, we're gonna put, replace the co-pilots, junior co-pilots with some of us more experienced uh, uh, pilots that are doing leadership roles now. And almost, almost to a man, unanimously, these guys from Delaware stood up and said, hell no, hell no, we didn't come this far. You know, almost in the same voice, we didn't come this far not to, uh, you know, not to go into action when it, when it was time. And I, uh, I still remember, I still feel it, and I tell the story of how much my chest swelled at my admiration and respect for these guys, just pride I had that they felt that strongly. It was one of my better stories. I just, of course, you know, did a lot of low-level, low-level missions. Um, uh, got really good at uh, flying 300 knots and chopping the throttles uh, two two miles uh, from a runway with uh, at 300 feet or less and making a landing. You know. Let's jump to 2002. You're the wing commander of the 166 and you have to oversee one of the largest mobilization efforts in the wing's history. Can you tell me about what you had to do to mentally prepare for this? And what were some of your pillars for success? Well, I'd say my, my career up to that point had, had been preparation for uh, the task that was at hand. I followed uh, uh, some capable, quali- capable uh, leaders uh, before me. I, I, I learned from them uh, how to be a leader. I learned some things not to do, not to <laughs> to be, but by and, by and large, I had a good good leadership foundation to begin with. Um, in terms of my own preparation, I've held every job in uh, typical operations other than the job of safety. I've been uh, the tactics officer the um, plans officer, uh, scheduling officer, uh, ops, uh, uh, OSF commander's role. Um, I think I had a very good understanding of how things worked on, on base. And I had a good love of people. Mom always taught me to do one others as you would be done by, and I'd use that as a, a personal creed. Uh, my experience from Desert uh, uh, Storm taught me that communications was all important for the folks back home, you know. A lot of times, if you're actually in the conflict arena, you know what you're doing, and half the time you're not doing anything. People back home don't think you're in combat continuously. They don't know. And uh, back then, the... Uh, Communications was was poor. Um, I used we used to fly in the Dahran. They had this big field of boxes that was filled with mail. We weren't getting mail in camp because these boxes were filled with our mail, as long along with the the cards and well wishes and and <laughs> boxes of uh, deodorant and 
the mail just got system got clogged up, so our mail just didn't get through, you know. But even to make phone calls, that you'd have to make, you'd have to stand in line. And uh, if you were fortunate, there'd only be 10 people in front of you for the one HF radio telephone call back to the state. So when I became the wing commander, I said, I'm going to I'm going to set up a hotline thing. And every day, uh, twice a day, I, was, I committed myself to up to updating the 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 phone list with things that I knew that were going on. I'd get reports and the troops are. Uh, doing well they they need this they need that blah blah i did that for about a week in conjunction with the family support uh apparatus that we established did that for about a week next thing you know i'm the wives are starting to tell me stuff and i'm saying what they're telling me where the guys are deploying where they're where they've been and, uh, and so forth come to find out that uh Guys had discovered T-Mobile phones, and everybody over there was getting a phone, and they were calling home, and basically bypassing uh, my attempts to uh, uh, keep the families appraised. They knew more than I did, um, and that had its downside too, because um, uh, quite a number of the dependents would. Um, call their spouses and let them know that the washing machine wasn't working, the hot tub broke down, the fans aren't working. And uh, that would become a source of irritant. It become, became a distraction to her folks trying to do the jobs they were doing. But uh, our role back here became take care of the troops. I, I, used, I described it as a wing commander. There's an A-team. Those are the guys that are out there doing doing the job. There's a B team. Those are the people who are giving their 100% effort to support our troops in the field. And then there's a C team. And those are the people we don't need, don't want. <laughs> okay? You don't want to be on the C team. Don't want to be on the C team. <laughs> it wouldn't be a heritage series without a discussion about your greater family's affiliation with military service. Could you please tell our listeners about your family story? Oh, I, uh, as I said, my uncles all served. Uh, my father had four brothers that served. Um, he served in the Army, um, advanced to the rank of sergeant, and was stationed in Europe as well as uh, Pacific. He described his job as an engineer. Um, he used to say, I would ask him, well, did you shoot anybody? Well, no, he says he never did. But uh, what was your job then, Dad? He said, well, I would get a bayonet, and I'd go out in front of the troops and look for landmines, you know? <laughs> uh, but he, he, was, he was proud of his service, and uh, one of his brothers, uh, James, earned a Bronze Star in combat in uh, Italy. But James, as well as... Uh, Willie both went ashore at Normandy. Uh, Willie went in on this in the second wave and described vividly, um, vividly to me, um, wading through uh, and literally stepping on bodies of his comrades as he made his way to the beach. Uh, 
another uncle served in the Navy. On the mother's side, uh, brother, one brother served in the Army, and the other one um, served in the um, Army and experienced some PTSD issues. So I'm assuming you learned about some of these stories before you joined. Oh, yeah. How did that have an impact on your decision to join the military? I think I was affected by uh, all the trajectory of all that had occurred prior to leading up to my joining this the service. And, you know, during World War II, we talked about the double V. Have you ever, ever heard that? No. Well, essentially, uh, certainly within the Tuskegee Airmen, but generally throughout the country at large, uh, there was a very active black press. No longer exists, but it was uh, it was nationwide in it, its coverage, and it was focused was primarily on uh, servicemen, African American servicemen, wherever they may be, and it was a. Um, uh, it was very highly publicized, the double V, victory in Europe and victory at home. Uh, from from uh, African-Americans' first involvement in the military, we've had to fight for the right to even serve. <laughs> um, but we've been in every conflict America's ever been involved in. And in the minds of many, certainly my dad's generation, uh, although war itself might not have been a pleasant thing, it was a sense of obligation that if we're going to enjoy the fruits of our society, then some of us have to be willing to uh, make the necessary sacrifices for that. The the generate, the, the uh, sacrifices I made, I I certainly had this explicit thought in my mind. Uh, The sacrifices I made would be played forward to, to my children. They would grant them not just the the freedoms, but the entitlement to the freedoms that I was fighting for. I couldn't help to call attention that you brought up the Tuskegee Airmen, and I was reading online that you were currently, or were, the president of the John Porter Dover chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen? Well, <laughs> I have in the past been the uh, president. I'm, I'm not currently the president. I, but I've been involved in the Tuskegee Airmen for the last 20, 20 some odd plus years. And I've had the opportunities to meet many of the originals who unfortunately now have gone on. But uh, I have a lot of rich, rich memories and some memorabilia from uh, knowing people like Span Watson, uh, Roscoe Brown, Lee Archer, uh, Fred, um, Fred Johnson, who's a Delawarean, Littleton Mitchell, who's a famed civil rights leader in Delaware. He was president of the NAACP for over 30 years, was a Tuskegee Airman. I had the pleasure of going around to various schools with him, uh, helping him to tell his story. That's so amazing and an inspiration to hear you continuing to tell that story, teaching younger generations this important part of our nation's history. Going back to the Delaware Guard, what were some of the most positive changes you saw during your career? Let's see. 
Well, I don't want to diminish the uh, efforts, patriotism, and dedications of previous generations of Delaware Guards people, but the world and the threats that we face have, have evolved. And while the Cold War was real and ultimately we won it, uh, after Korea and leading up to Vietnam, the Guard was pretty much regarded as a sanctuary for those that were avoiding the draft, if you, if you will. And it was available to a privileged few. Uh, one of the strengths we talk about today is that we're a family, the Guard family. Uh, but uh, early on when I joined the Guard, that family literally were folks that were from the same community and all looked the same and were inclined to uh, provide rewards to those people who were part of the family. So one of the things that I've seen, and I, I not to give myself more credit than, than is due, but there was a, a conscious effort to make sure we expanded our recruiting efforts. I, I remember asking the recruiter when I became wing commander, where, tell me about our recruiting plan, how we're addressing the, the community at large. At the time, and I knew part of the answer, but uh, we used to invite, he said, well, we invite high school uh, students to come out and view our maintenance complex. Well, the high school students we invited were from Salazianum High School, which is an all-college prep uh, institution, and they got a chance to view maintenance, which were functions that they probably weren't going to try to apply for anyway. Um, and we advertised on, um, I forget the, the station call letters, but the, uh, the major country western station here in Wilmington. So, <laughs> so we, you know, I had to have a, the conversation to explain to him that that's not the way we we're going to do things moving forward in the future. Um, we, uh, it's been a ev really an evolutionary uh, path, and as a senior, first the only black officer, and as a senior, and ultimately a senior officer, many folks would bring their issues to me for um, my advice and resolution. I found that, and I had a lot of advice to give people, but when I became a squadron commander, I found it was necessary to stop giving too much advice, because I didn't want people giving me advice at that point in time either. <laughs> <laughs> but let's see. Let, let me, I think I got off topic there for a second. No worries, General. But at any rate, the, the Guard, we started enlarging ourselves. It, uh, we embraced diversity, if you will. And diversity truly is about making heads count, not, not just counting heads. And in that sense, things, things have gotten better. We still have folks who still didn't get it. There were folks that didn't get the fact that we were no longer a flying club, that we became part of the total force. There were higher expectations of standards that we needed to ad adhere to. There were senior personnel in all ranks who really weren't performing at a, an expected comparable level compared to some of our active duty counterparts. Those had to be corrected as we moved into greater total force integration. 
So those things have we become, I think, a, a more professional force in that regard, certainly more busy. We got away from the weekend warrior mentality where we used to fight over who was gonna go to St. Croix on the guard lift or <laughs> in units that had real training needs and needed us to deliver them to unpleasant places or fly JAT missions in, in austere locations, couldn't get the service they needed from the, the National Guard. Well, those things have changed. We, uh, there's less waste in the system and the things we do are significantly important to our continued national defense and our own training, training needs. We're an in indispensable component of the, uh, the military now. They can't do their job without the guard. It's been a while since I've been in a unit. Up to the point that I left, I would say, I could have said, minorities are welcomed. Minorities, minorities are advancing to the limits of their capabilities. Folks that weren't uh, adhering to standards of, as they were prescribed, were not hanging around too long. They were being helped out the door. Women, I remember when we hired the first woman as a pilot within a unit. Given my own experiences, I think anyone would say that I was certainly an advocate for giving women the opportunity to fly in our unit. I did have to change some of my instructional techniques and verbiage, but uh, <laughs> I think overall we, the unit has been uh, rewarded by expanding ourselves to uh, women. Carol Timmons, I don't have to explain to you her, her career, but I would I would say it wasn't easy for her. Along those lines, we went through that era of don't ask, don't tell. I think we managed that as well as, as could be managed, but I was glad when that was dropped. As a wing commander, <laughs> I found I had more issues, ongoing issues with folks who identified themselves as uh, heterosexuals than I did with any, anybody else, you know? Those items of personal preference that had no bearing on the job that we, we do, they no longer became issues. That's uh, an improvement. And as our total force involvement in, increased, at the same time, we stayed engaged in the community, actively a part of uh, Special Olympics Delaware. The Air Guard, as far as I, know, as I know, is still participating in multiple events along those lines. And now the uh, Army Guard, I believe, is, has embraced what we started, if you will. <laughs> and the community has uh, certainly responded as, as we have been deployed, not just on the air side, but the Army side as well. I think we're fairly well integrated with our community out here. It's important that we keep some effort into recruiting diverse populations into our guard. It's too easy for things to settle back in undesirable ways if their leadership is not actively involved in making sure we represent this community. Well said, General Talbert, well said. Before we close out today's episode, are there any final thoughts you'd like to impart on our listeners? Uh, final thoughts. <laughs> uh, there is such a uniqueness about the National Guard my, my favorite, the Air National Guard, but the, the National Guard. I took pride in my dual status role, both obligation to the state as well as federal obligation. At one time, I became really good, close friends with the wing commander and the vice wing commander, uh, not the vice wing commander. He, actually, vice wing commander was one of my co-pilots when I flew in 141. But the wing commander 
and the reserve wing commander. And we we had some various exchanges. We all, all three of us flew together on C-5 uh, refueling missions, whatnot. And we talk about our similarities and we're trying to develop a a, a Delaware total force uh, picture, if you will, amongst us. I was able to explain to them the difference between what they did and what I did. The active duty wing commander got transferred every two and a half years, no longer than two and a half years. The reserve commander may have stayed around a little bit longer, but he was going to move to another wing in the space of three, three years or so. But I was here. I've been here since day one, if you will, of my guard existence. I've uh, served with grandfathers and had the sad experience of presenting a flag to the widow of that person's grandson. You know, this thing is a, this thing is personal. The, the National Guard is personal. It's not p- personal to when somebody gets tapped as part of that 3% that we test every drill weekend and they don't do so well, have to um, explain the consequences to them. It's, an, it, it's a very intense experience. It's very rewarding. It's been a privilege to serve. That's the first word that comes to my mind when I think about serving in the National Guard. General MacArthur, in his speech to the uh, class at West Point, when he gave his duty, honor, and country speech, at the same time, he had admonished the crowd that their, their job as members of the U.S. military was not to involve ourselves in the body politic, as he, as he described it. That that was the province of the civilians, largely. <laughs> well, we we come to you as citizen soldiers. Most of us are citizens, but still and yet, um, we have an obligation that should transcend issues of of politics. And I am somewhat saddened that the pure civilians are seemingly letting us down in terms of taking taking care of their end of things. So I'll let it go with that. I'd like to personally thank you, General Talbert, for joining us today and sharing your story and also for your service to our country. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel so you can always stay up to date with new content and share this online with your friends in the community. This is Staff Sergeant Paul Thorson of the 166th Airlift Wing Public Affairs Team signing off.